Hello, everybody. Welcome to Into the Light. Um, we're so grateful you came back this week to listen to um, our co-host episode. Um, we have today here Aaron Stanger. And Aaron is my best friend in the world, and I love him to death because <laughs> he's one of the men who restored my faith in men and humanity. Um, and today we're just going to hear a little bit about Aaron's story and about um, kind of what he's been going through throughout his entire life. Um, but Aaron, if you want to introduce yourself, um, where'd you grow up? How many siblings you have? What kind of house you live in? What was kind of your culture that you lived in, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess before I introduce myself, I want to uh, talk a little bit about Brayline too, because I think the highest compliment anyone has ever paid me in my whole life came from Brayline one time when she said, if I was... <laughs> if I if I was six five and black, she would marry me on the spot. So <laughs> anytime I'm feeling down, I go back to that. If I was six five and black. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks, Raylan. Of course. Um, so yeah, I um I grew up in a little town called West Point, Utah, a little farm town. Um, shout out to West Point. I have three other siblings. I'm the oldest of four. I have a brother who is 22 now, a sister who's 17, and a brother who's 15. Um, my parents are amazing. My dad's a convert to the church. He was baptized when he was 19. Mm. Um, him and my mom are high school sweethearts. Oh. They met their senior year of high school. Um, my mom introduced him to the church officially, and he went through a few sets of missionaries and decided to get baptized. Didn't serve a mission, um, but is honestly the best dude in the world. Heck yeah. The best man in the world, I should say. He is a man. He's not <laughs> merely a dude. It's not just a dude. <laughs> but I I grew up in, in the most like loving household in the world. I didn't I didn't lack anything as a kid. Wow. I was uh I remember being on my mission and and talking to one of my best friends on the mission, just being like, you know, what the heck did we do in the pre existence to deserve growing up in northern Utah? in this family where my mom and dad love each other. Mm. All my siblings, we love each other. Yeah. And we're just blessed with like literally everything that we could ask for. Not to say there weren't hardships and, and trials that we went through, but like as it came to temporal and spiritual things. Was that a norm in your community though? Yeah. Okay. I would say so. At least with my friend group. Mm -hmm. I feel like we all grew up in the, in good homes. Yeah. Very similar That's circumstances. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a little bit about me. Nice. I am so grateful uh, that I met Aaron um, however long ago it was um, because I think that's one thing we wanted to bring on this podcast was um, the diversity and difference between uh, <laughs> both of me and Aaron's situations, but the way we believe. Um, and so let's dive deep a little bit here and let's let's start where your story begins, Aaron, wherever you want to start, however age you said it started first when you were 12 years old, correct? Yeah, so the or original beginning of it, I I can't pinpoint an exact date on. It's Kay. been forever, and I've probably tried to wipe that memory so many times. Um, but I guess where it starts is I grew up in a very sports-loving household, a super athletic household, um, playing basketball, playing soccer, playing football, playing golf, like any and all of the above. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, and I don't, I'm not blaming any of this on my parents at all, 
but I put a ton of pressure on myself to be the best athlete around. Mm-hmm. And I based a lot of my self-worth and my identity on my athletic performance and on my school grades and on a lot of these external things, which I feel like a lot of people do. A lot of kids do. Um, But also I was very, very insecure as a kid from the time that I was probably in like fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade, I could remember just being super insecure and, and feeling like I have to prove myself in these different ways and in getting straight A's in, having a this weird like mormon girlfriend relationship thing throughout junior high and yeah and high school and <laughs> and and ex- and excelling in athletics like mm-hmm. in whatever i tried i would just absolutely devote myself so i could i could make myself feel better by beating other people this competition this pride you know mm-hmm. that would that would eat at me and when it wouldn't go well i would get really down on myself and i don't know this episode is going to be all about addiction addiction to pornography addiction to masturbation things like that and let me just say before all this that i am very very nervous <laughs> to be to be sharing all these things not not that i feel like people are going to judge me but just that i i want to come off and articulate myself in a way that gives people hope yeah um i think that's important because i mean that's the reason why we started this podcast but no one talks about this. No one talks about their story. No one talks about what they struggled through or how they got it through it. And so it's kind of this taboo subject that some people are like, well, I'm struggling with that. I'm probably the only weird person in this world, you know? So it's a way that other people can identify with you. Exactly. Exactly. And when I opened up to someone else and was able to relate to someone yeah. on that level was when my life changed. Mm-hmm. And so I hope in some way that this, that someone can relate to my own story yeah. and be like, Hey, I need to open up to someone and start to change my life. So I don't know. I feel like it all started. It was when I was 11 or 12, I was in sixth grade. Um, and I feel like it was before puberty. I don't know if we want to bring that up or not, but bring it up, Aaron. (laughs) Let's go. Everyone goes through it. I mean, you start to feel those feelings. You start to feel those, those sexual desires. And, and again, None of this is my parents' fault, I don't think. Yeah. But I didn't know where any of that was coming from. And at the time, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel guilty at all for it, which you shouldn't mm-hmm. because it's a natural thing. Yeah. Um, but yet, when I would get sexually excited or aroused for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, I'd be like, what the heck's happening? Yeah. Like, like what's going on? So did it start with masturbation or start with pornography? It started with, with masturbation. Yeah. So it was, I feel like I was just this curious kid mm-hmm. with like so innocent to sexual things. Yeah, just being like, for sure. Why is this happening and why does this feel good? You know, mm-hmm. I didn't feel any guilt for it. Yeah. But there came a point. Um, I remember, I remember watching this one movie. And it was a PG-13 movie. Um, and there was a sex scene in it. And it wasn't anything like graphic. Yeah. But, you know, it was enough. Mm-hmm. It was enough to to get those feelings aroused. And I remember connecting the dots, being like, oh, you know, when I see this, this happens to myself. Mm. And it feels good. Yeah. And so once that pattern gets 
cemented into your brain, it's it's a crazy road from yeah. there. It's 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 brain chemistry. It's it's that reward pathway. Mm-hmm. When you see this, you feel this way. When you do this to yourself, you feel this way. Mm-hmm. And so it started this. I don't want to say spiral, but this this journey, I guess, through sexuality in a really negative way. Mm-hmm. I remember after that, like my mind would just wander and be like, oh, this is how humans work. Like this is what people crave outside of marriage. And um, it, it just feels good. Yeah, for sure. What was kind of your, because I feel like this is important to, with your backstory, what was your, the way that sex and the law of chastity and pornography, how was those topics in your household? How were they addressed or were they ever addressed? Like what was kind of the culture behind it within your own home? I'm sure they were addressed, but I don't remember. Yeah. It wasn't very prevalent. I mean, I remember having like a generic, like Mm -hmm. birds and the beads, birds and the beads, birds and the bees (laughs) conversation. Yeah. But nothing like, you know, when this happens, you should do this, you know, when this Uh happens, you should do this. Like, this is a natural thing. Don't feel bad for it but bridle this, mm. you know, got it feeling. You know? That's, that's more than most people. So that's good. Yeah. Was um, it, was it ever something that like was shame built up during your beginning stages of this or not really? Yeah. So once I saw that scene and kind of connected the dots between the feeling mm-hmm. and what I saw, um, I remember I had an iPod touch, you know, the OG like yep. generation four iPod touch, this, piece of crap thing with a broken home button yeah and <laughs> <laughs> we all had it we were 12 and 13 but at the same time i want to make this point as well that i'm 23 years old the oldest child to my parents they're yeah. they're only 20 years older than i am they did not grow up with the technology that our generation grew Valid. up with Valid. and so when i got this ipod touch for christmas one year there were no parental controls on it like mm-hmm. safari was wide open yeah. I could literally search anything and watch anything and it's not their fault. Like they didn't know that's just, it's just ignorance for sure. It's unintentional ignorance, but that's, that's where it escalated Got it. was seeing that scene and then connecting the dots and then your mind wanders from there yeah. and you search things and then it just gets deeper and deeper and darker. And I don't know. I I struggled with that pattern from the time I was probably 12 or 13 to 15, mm-hmm. 16 years old, just going deeper and deeper into the pornography hole. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, a general principle of addiction is it takes more and more of the stimulus to give you the same reward that it did at first. For sure. And so if I watched that PG-13 sex scene from when I was 12 at the time when I was 15 you know you wouldn't get that same feeling that Mm -hmm. same high that you got after going through it for years for sure and it's such a scary thought when I look back on it to be like this 12 13 14 15 year old was diving into the depths of addiction and didn't really realize what was happening to his brain and it, it was it was a pattern that that dealt a lot with um, athletics too. So I would, I would play basketball and just had terrible self-esteem. Mm. 
and terrible self-confidence. And so I was a way better player than I showed on the court, but just didn't feel like I was worth anything. For sure. And so I wouldn't play up to my abilities. And then after the game, I'd be like, why did I play so crappy? Mm. Why was I so timid out there? And then the cycle would hit. I'm like, well, this thing helps me feel better, at least momentarily. And so I would turn to it and it would. And then afterwards you feel even crappier about that the pressures that you put on yourself or the pressures of the world or the pressures that whoever put on you kind of led you to okay I need to feel a different way and I remember feeling like this this way and this is how I'm gonna do it yeah it temporarily relieves this pressure yeah and it's all it was all based on my own where I put my identity Mm -hmm. my identity was being this golden child athlete yeah I remember I would get straight A's I would start on the basketball team in junior high. I was dating the cheer captain in high school. I was dating the cheer captain. He had this like image. I had this, I had this reputation Mm -hmm. to uphold. I remember going through young men's being the deacon's quorum president, the teacher's quorum president, the first assistant Mm -hmm. to the bishop and the priest quorum and just lying my way through it all because of this pressure I put on myself to, to be this perfect child, to be this perfect, I guess, kid yeah growing up in northern utah that had everything handed to him you can't struggle yeah. if you have everything handed to you yeah i think that's that's a perception that's that we really need to kill as a society because no matter who you are or what demographic you came from you you struggle in everything why not why are yeah. you not allowed to struggle any more than i am any more than right. the next person right who was like the first person that you ever talk to about or like during the time between you were 12 or 15 maybe you talked to yourself about it did you talk to god about it like how did that yeah no i don't know i get what you're saying i get what you're saying i I feel like i had this very warped perception of repentance as well Mm. i had this perception of repentance that said if i confess to god and i pray to him and ask for forgiveness then i'm good and so the cycle would happen. I'd have a bad day. I would turn to the addiction. I'd feel good for a second, and then I'd feel even worse afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then I'd cry, and I'd pray to Heavenly Father to forgive me for not, I guess, holding up my own integrity of what I knew was right. Mm-hmm. But that was the extent of it. And then I'd be like, that's, that's it. Like, and I'd tell myself, I'm never going to do it again. Cause I just prayed and I confessed to heavenly father mm-hmm. and then I'd go for two days, three days and then I'd have another bad day and the same thing would happen. And it was just this warped perception of repentance. Cause that's not what repentance is. That's not a change of heart. And yeah. I'm, and I don't blame it on myself either at that time because I don't know, maybe it was a lack of focus in priest quorum or teacher's quorum or whatever I was in um, when it came to gospel studies. But I've always been one that I feel like I need to learn things the hard way. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I guess when I got to, it was around 15 or 16, I got so sick of watching pornography that I told myself I wasn't going to turn to it. At least I got so sick of watching like the actual like hard like going to pornography websites mm-hmm. and, and searching out videos that way. Um, I just got, I just, I was so done with myself yeah. at that time. 
And I told myself I wasn't going to turn to it anymore. And from that point on, from 15 or 16, whatever that time frame was, I didn't. I didn't visit another porn site again. But I would access it in different ways. I would access it through YouTube. I would access it through audio crap. Um, I wouldn't say like whatever I could get my hands on to, but when you're feeling that way, I mean, when you're an addict, you find ways to feed that addiction. Mm, Interesting. Um, And even if it's not like the hard stuff, like I turned to originally, it still was enough to feed it and to progress myself that way. So from the time I was 15 or 16 to 18 or so, um, I didn't open up a pornography website and I felt good about myself in a way because of that. I was able to exercise at least that much self-control Yeah. in no way was I recovering in no way was I actually repenting. I was still turning to the addiction in, in hard times. Um, but I was proud of myself in that way. To yeah. Yeah. I think little by little, I don't think, I think that's a perception of repentance. That's bad. That you have to, you have these huge milestones to repent. But I think the savior says like little by little, if you turn your heart to me, like, I think you can get those little pieces of inspiration to just be like, I can get through this just a little more. Yeah. You line know? upon line. line, Dang, upon line. That's crazy. I, uh, it got to the point where it was getting to almost mission time, you know, mission mm-hmm. prep time. And I had lied my way through every single interview I'd had from the time I was 12 to this point, you know, 17, late 17, 18. Mm-hmm. And that pattern didn't change, sadly. And I look back on it and I still feel a little bit of shame for it. I feel like I still shame myself a little bit for lying my way through those interviews because even if a bishop perceives that you're not being 100% truthful, mm-hmm. they're not going to call you out on it. That's not repentance. Yeah. And so even if I was bishop's first assistant and I would go on visits with him and I'd go golfing with him, we were good friends. And then I'd get into an interview for a temple recommend or if I was starting my mission papers and he'd ask me about a worthiness thing and I'd be like, I'm good, bishop. I struggled with that in the past, but I'm okay now. Mm-hmm. Complete lie. Yeah. I'm just getting my way through it to uphold that golden, golden, that golden boy, boy yeah, reputation. How, okay, so what it was your perception of getting through your addiction with pornography and masturbation? Like, obviously you had this perception of, I need to go to the bishop, but what did you think you were going to get from the bishop? How was that kind of, like, how did you view you taking that step to go to the bishop and talk about it? Like, why did you feel that need so badly to do it? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I never actually felt that need. Okay. I don't think before my mission. Got it. Sadly, I was so numb. I was so numb to the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember a time when my my little brother struggled with the same thing at the same time that I was going through it, but he was much more open and he would visit the bishop frequently and work through it. And I would take him to this class, this addiction recovery class through the Sons of Helaman, um, through Life Changing Services. And I remember one day driving him to that class and seeing my best friend's car there in the parking lot. And this is when I was a senior in high school. Yeah. And at that point, I made a decision that no one would ever know that I was struggling with this. Mm. 
which is so backwards. Yeah. You'd, you'd think that when I saw my best friend's car there in that parking lot, I'd be like, wow. You know, I'm and not, your brother I'm was not going the only one too. and my brother. But I'm like, I feel like it really was a pride thing Interesting. that I could do it by myself. And I would show to everyone that I could do it by myself and no one would ever have to know because I'd overcome it yeah. by myself. And that, that fed the lying and that fed the, the deceit that every addict goes through. And I remember, I mean, I don't remember being in a specific interview, but I remember like going to start my mission papers with my bishop, you know, the interview you have before you start your mission papers yeah. and making the decision beforehand. I'm going to tell him this much. So he knows that I've like kind of struggled with it, but that I'm, that I'm good now, you know? Mm. And I think one of the reasons why I felt okay about that, even though it wasn't, I feel like one of the reasons why I felt okay about that was because when I would go through that cycle, um, when I would pray, you know, the next day or the next two days or whatever, I would have times where I felt the spirit. When I listened to a talk or watch a Mormon message, I would feel the spirit strong and I'd be like, you know, I am okay. Like mm -hmm. I'm trying and I can do this yeah. by myself, even though I couldn't. And it, I guess something that else that I should add is it got less frequent as I got older. So I made that decision when I was 15 or 16 to never visit a pornography site. And then just had a straight willpower. Yeah, I just had a straight willpower and I and I held myself to that a hundred percent. And to this day, I haven't visited another pornography site since whenever I made that decision. Mm -hmm. And as the years went on, it would it would get less frequent. My my relapses would get less frequent. And so I would say back when I was like twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, it would happen, you know, almost every day, if not every day. Sometimes multiple times a day. Yeah. And then as I got to like 15, 16, 17, 18, I would go, you know, a week without it. And then I'd feel really good. And then something would happen and I'd relapse. And then maybe I'd go two weeks. And I got to the point when I was 18 and I, and I went through my bishop and my stake president interview for prepping for a mission. Mm -hmm. And I would go like a month at a time without viewing anything, without masturbation, any of that. And I think part of it came from just changing my focus like I was so fired up about serving a mission yeah. I was like I can't I can't fall to this and so it was a little bit of willpower um, but it was more like a responsibility to God like you know I know I'm not clean but like I'm trying and I see progress in myself but it's definitely not going away yeah and so while I felt clean at times I knew I wasn't worthy of of acting in in God's name the priesthood interesting um i have a question i just actually talked to my co-worker about this yesterday and somebody mentioned this and it kind of goes on along with what you were just saying um somebody said this quote to her and i want to know how you think about it based on your experience um but it was like a priesthood authority and it says and she was struggling with law of chastity things as well and he said, direct quote, you can't receive revelation for yourself if you're sinning like that. And how do you, I, I, I almost punched the wall when I heard that because I have very strong feelings towards it. But how do you, how do you feel towards that? 
that perception of you can't receive revelation for yourself or you can't have God present in your life when you are sinning. I understand where he's coming from, but I feel like can't is the wrong word to use. I feel like won't is the better word to use. Mm. Because when you're transgressing, when you're blatantly sinning like that, yeah. you're choosing in a way not to receive revelation. Mm-hmm. It's not that you're incapable of it. It's that you're choosing through your actions not to. Yeah. But do you think that, I don't know. I feel like the light of Christ can shine through whatever though. Mm-hmm. At times, I I, I, I haven't thought about this. <laughs> you know, you know I, I don't know. I feel like you having the like willpower to not visit another porn site again. I think that sorry. And you're a great guy, but I don't think you did that all by yourself, you know, or you like going month, like a month and not a couple days. I think that was, I think that was God no, in I a agree. way. I, I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't I know agree. how you think about that. I agree a hundred percent. It totally wasn't me. Hmm. And yeah, I don't know what context that, that quote is taken. Yeah, it's probably not, taken out of context, <laughs> but <laughs> But I, I feel like it's more it's more the actor's incapability to recognize it maybe. There we go. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So when you you're getting prepared to go on your mission, um, you still haven't kicked it at that point is that correct yeah that's correct and 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 how how did it go after that yeah so i guess something that i should add in is i think it happened twice from the time i was like 15 to the time i was 17 16 or 17 that my my parents had had caught me in the act and i made my feel my i made myself feel really ashamed i was guilty of being caught i wasn't guilty for the act more than anything yeah um i don't know why i added that in but i feel like that was an important detail it wasn't that no one knew but my parents did know but not because i told them yeah because they found out in other ways did they ever approach you about it? Yeah, yeah, they did. They definitely did. I, I remember both times, it was like a day or two after, they would be like, hey, Aaron, can we talk? And my heart would sink. I'd be like, I know exactly what's coming. Mm. And how'd those conversations go? They went about it in a really loving way. But they were also very stern. And it it, it was, I'm telling you, Braylon, I was a very prideful kid. And it would just cement my own, my own drive to never let it be seen again Mm. to fake it more yeah i mean i i'm sure there was probably a point where during those conversations or after those conversations where i was like yeah i i have a problem and i need to change but at the same time i was like i'm gonna do it myself and i can do it myself Mm -hmm. when that's just not true that's not true when it comes to addiction interesting and so it it went like that that same cycle until i left on my mission you know that last summer i remember it probably happened like once a month maybe once every three weeks or so so you personally at this time didn't have like the deep desire to be done with it for good or did you you know subconsciously i feel like i didn't 
because I didn't take the steps that I knew were probably necessary to overcome it. But outwardly, and I feel like superficially I did, I really did. I was sick of being a slave to this addiction, but I was too prideful to actually reach out and get the help that I needed. Was it more because of you would have to approach a human being? Yeah, yeah. it was It was fear of disappointment. That. Yeah, that's was, not easy. It was fear of disappointing others and what they would think of me. Yeah, dang. What, what, would, what would my parents think if one week I showed up to church and I didn't partake of the sacrament? Or what would my, what would my fellow members of the priest quorum think of me yeah. if I told them, you know, I can't bless today? What would my bishop think if I told him, I don't feel like I can give this blessing at this time. Yeah, that is so hard. Such a social shaming that's that's shame at its core. Integrated into who we are as members of the church. Yeah, that is that is tough. I didn't mm. think about it like that because it's 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 a constant it's a constant shaming because you were an active member of the church. You went. You were very involved. Outwardly, everything was perfect. Yeah. And so now this secret inside of you in this, I don't know, person you were inside of you just didn't want to be showcased outside. Wow. That's, ooh, how did you get through that, Aaron? (laughs) That is not easy. That is a question I ask myself all the time. Um, And I guess where it continues is once that day that I entered the MTC, Mm -hmm. every single desire left and it was it was a night and day difference for me dang that's incredible and i know this is not what happens to everybody i know people struggle with this throughout their missions and and before and after but as soon as i entered the mtc it was rare that i even thought about it anymore wow and it wasn't from having the spirit with me constantly it was from my deep deep sense of duty to be the best missionary that i could to prove to god that I am okay yeah. by the amount of work that I put in, by the amount of obedience that I put in. Not because I had a desire to change. It was out of duty. It was 100% out of duty. More of like, I'm going to prove myself to God that I'm capable. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. And because of that laser focus, I didn't have an urge. Hmm. I didn't have that temptation. My whole mission. My whole mission. But... There came a point, and this this was this was the week that absolutely changed my life. The first seven months of my mission sucked. <laughs> I hated it so much. I, looking back, I love my mission, but my first seven months of the mission was terrible because of me, mm. because of my own mindset, um, because of the situation that I found myself in and being a victim to that. But I just remember looking back and having the worst companions, Mm. having a mission president that just I did not see eye to eye with at all and that I felt terrible talking to. Mm. And I remember it was when I was in my second area. Um, Well, at the same time, you know, my first seven months of the mission sucked, but I really learned at that time how to rely more on heavenly father because i had no one else to turn to yeah i didn't have a single person that i could even speak english to well that as well as you didn't know anyone yeah you were learning a new culture 
a brand new language and you completely had to set yourself aside from the world and do this thing in a completely different language and completely different culture. Understandable. Yeah. And I feel so like I, the first, that's, that's hard for. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like everyone people. goes through yeah. that in a way, but I feel like this all contributes to my overall recovery and my continuing recovery is this, this period in my life where I didn't have anyone else I could speak English to except for Heavenly Father in yeah. my prayers. Oh, that's cool. And so that was the only time I ever felt heard. Huh. That was the only time I ever felt heard in those times. Truly heard. And that was probably the first time in my life I felt that way to Heavenly Father. Oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> oh. But at the same time, I was really, really not in a good place mentally. Hmm. I... Not that I ever feel like I ever really struggled with depression um, or anxiety, but I I would wake up and I'd be like, I'm not going outside today. I do not want people to laugh at me because of how bad I am at this language. I do not want my companion to criticize me one more time for something I say or something that I do. I don't want to try and motivate my companion to get out of freaking bed and actually do missionary work for once mm-hmm. or study with me for once so I can try and improve. And I would just be like, why the heck am I out here? Yeah. Like, what am I doing? And that happened through my first, I mean, there were good days and bad days, of course, but that happened through my first three companionships. And I was in my second area, and this was in March of 2018, about seven months into my mission, six, seven months into my mission. My companion was not the hardest worker. And one day he woke up and he said he was sick. He was sick, in air quotes. And maybe he was sick but he wasn't sick. He didn't want to work that day. And I remember at his own conference previously, I had talked to one of the other American missionaries in my mission um, and really forged a bond in that little, you know, 20, 30 minute conversation we had. And he had given me this USB with all these talks on it. And I remember that day, I was a Tuesday, a Tuesday morning when my companion woke up sick and stayed in bed the whole day. And I had the whole day to do whatever I wanted. And I remember I cleaned up the house. Um, I did my studies. And there's this little pad in our living room of our house, this little concrete hut thing. There's this little foam pad in the living room for when other missionaries came to stay over at our place. And I laid down on that pad with my little speaker and my USB plugged into my speaker. And I turned on this talk called um, His Grace is Sufficient by Brad Wilcox. And I know probably everyone listening to this or most everyone listening to this knows that talk pretty well. Yeah, It's a very well-known talk today in the church, but it was the first time that I heard it. And it absolutely changed my mindset. I want to read a quote from it. He talks about this analogy of learning the piano and he relates it to life and he says when someone's learning the piano we, they don't only have two options either making it to Carnegie Hall or quitting mm-hmm. they work through how hard it is and they make mistakes they make thousands of mistakes and they keep on practicing and, and get better and he says this about that isn't that all part of the learning process when a young pianist hits a wrong note We don't say he is not worthy to keep practicing. We just expect him to keep trying. We are learning heaven. 
Too many people are giving up on the church because they are so tired of constantly feeling like they are falling short. Oh, they've tried in the past, but always feel like they are just not good enough. They don't understand grace. There are young men who grow up their whole life saying, I hope they call me on a mission. Then they actually do grow a foot or two, and they flake out completely. Oh, they get their eagles, they graduate from high school, but these young men find out how easy it is to not be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, clean, or reverent. They mess up, so they say, I'll never do it again. And then they do it. And then they say, well, I'll never do it again. And then they do it. And then they say, this is stupid. I will never do it again. And then they do it. The guilt is almost unbearable. They don't dare talk to Bishop. Instead, they hide. And they say, I can't do this. I've tried. So they quit. And then I have in brackets here, or in my case, they go anyway. They don't understand grace. I know return missionaries who come home and slip back into bad habits they thought were over. They break promises they made before God, angels, and witnesses. And they're convinced that there's no hope for them now. They don't understand Jesus' atonement. Jesus' grace. Change is a process. Repentance is a pattern. Do we have to be worthy for a chance to start again? No. Don't search for someone to blame. Search for someone to help you. And this was, this was literally this day was the day where everything changed for me. Mm. Something, something clicked in my mind, and I started to finally understand what repentance meant. I remember hearing that talk and it sparking a thought. And I turned to this other talk that my trainer had given me called The Consecrated Missionary from Tad Callister. And there's one quote in there that hit me so hard every single time I read it. And he says, pride may manifest itself in a reluctance to confess our sins. Mm. I was like, oh, Ooh. shoot, that's me. He says, when should I confess? When the sin continues to linger in our minds so we cannot have peace. Serving a faithful mission does not obviate confession. Months of abstinence does not erase its need. One-on-one pleading with the Lord is not a substitute. When we confess our sins, our spiritual horizons become unlimited and we become entitled to the promises of the Lord. And so that, that was the most convicting quote I have ever read in my life. He said, serving a faithful mission does not obviate confession. Months of abstinence does not obviate confession. One-on-one pleading does not obviate confession. And that was everything that I'd done up to that moment in my life. I was going to say, does, does it feel like at that moment here in these talks, it was very, I'm going through that thing right now. Exactly. This is something that I've told nobody, but that is exactly what's happening. And I didn't know I needed to think about it in that way. Exactly. That's interesting. It was a mindset switch. It was yeah. a paradigm shift. Yeah. And it's, oof. That's really cool because it's it's not coming from any person. And I think that's what's cool about your process is that it wasn't talking to the bishop. It wasn't talking to a friend. It wasn't, it was, it was quite literally God revealing it to you at the time you needed. That day was not a coincidence Mm -hmm. that I think it was March 17th of 2018 or March 7th. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I have it written down in my scriptures. (laughs) 
But that day was not a coincidence. My companion getting supposedly sick was not a coincidence. I needed that time to really think deeply about myself. Yeah. And and actually clear it up. Yeah. So myself. what did you do with that paradigm shift? Um <laughs> so there's there's actually one more talk that I listened to that day. And this is my favorite talk of all time. And it's a BYU devotional by President Eyring, who was presiding bishop at the time of the church. It's called Come Unto Christ. And in that talk, I mean, he talks about a lot of things. He talks about how oftentimes we we have this desire that we want to be better. We want to become more like the Savior. And at that on that day in my life, I was like, that is me. Mm. I want to become more like the Savior. And in it, he shares this story of a time when he was bishop for his local ward and a young man who was about to get married came to him and was like, Bishop, I've done this, this, and this. How do I know when I fully repented? And he gave him a deadline. He's like, I got to know before this time because I want to be 100% worthy for my wife Mm. and marry her in the temple. And Bishop Iring at the time didn't have an answer for him. But luckily he went to this party um, and President or Elder Kimball was there, Elder Spencer W. Kimball, you know. Casual. The man when it comes to forgiveness. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say that. The Savior's the man when it comes to <laughs> forgiveness. But Elder Kimball is the go-to when it mm. comes to forgiveness For and sure. repentance. Um, and he talks about this conversation that he had. And he asks, he asks Elder Kimball when we know our sins are remitted when the Lord has forgiven us. And I, again, I hope no one's bored of this, but I want to read a little bit about what he says here. So he asks Elder Kimball, how can he get that revelation? How can he know whether his sins are remitted? And then he says, I thought Elder Kimball would talk to me about fasting or prayer or listening for the still small voice, but he surprised me. Instead, he said, tell me something about the young man. I said, what would you like to know? And then he began a series of the most simple questions. Some of the ones I remember were, does he come to his priesthood meetings? I said, after a moment of thought, yes. Does he come early? Yes. Does he sit down front? I thought for a moment and then realized to my amazement that he did. Does he home teach? Yes. Does he go early in the month? Yes, he does. Does he go more than once? Yes. I can't remember the other questions, but they were all like that. Little things, simple acts of obedience, of submission. And for each question, I was surprised that my answer was always yes. Yes, he wasn't just at all of his meetings. He was early. He was smiling. He was there not only with his whole heart, but with the broken heart of a little child, Mm. as he was every time the Lord asked anything of him. And after I had said yes to each of these questions, Elder Kimball looked at me, paused, and then very quietly said, there is your revelation. And that, that right there brought me to tears at that time because I had been doing all those things for seven months at that time. Literally the only thing missing from my heart at that moment was my confession to a proper priesthood authority. Mm-hmm. And so I think for the first time that day, that morning, I started to feel a little bit of healing a little bit of actual healing. Yeah. And I and I started to feel actually happy. I started to feel like I didn't need to prove myself anymore. Mhm. 
And I remember after I did all that, um, I opened up Doctrine and Covenants section 19 and read that and just tried to learn a little bit more about repentance. Classic. And I read Alma chapter 5. And there's two scripture verses in Alma 5 that I'd love to share a little bit later. But I remember after reading those things and just having this ultimate like light bulb moment like I'm okay yeah like this is the start right here like this is where I change I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning Wednesday morning and during personal study I wrote down every single thing I'd ever done and I filled up five or six pages of of handwriting and I told myself I'm going to read this to one of my best friends on the mission that's going to be coming here for district council this weekend Mm. And I remember they came on Friday, I think. Um, oh, it was actually district conference. I remember it was district conference. So our mission president was going to be coming in for church on Saturday and Sunday. So they came on on Friday. Mm-hmm. And that night was the night that I had set aside for myself. I'm going to read this and I'm going to finally tell someone everything that I've gone through since the time I was 11 or 12. Wow. And I remember Wonderful. that. that <laughs> That night, I came up with every excuse in the book not to. Every excuse in the book. And it was like, don't tell my mission president this, but it was probably like 11, 15, 11, 30 at night. I was sitting at my desk with a blank stare at the wall. I was like the only one up, or so I thought. I was the only one up. Um, My best friend and his companion were sleeping in the living room on those pads. And I was in a room just with the door open. They could see my light on. And I was just like thinking of everything that I could do to not tell them. And I don't know what hit me, but I walked out of the room. I had the paper and I sat down next to him. And I was like, guys, I have something I need to tell you. Mm -hmm. And I went through and I read the whole thing and cried the whole time. And I remember just thinking that they are going to look at me with the most incredulous look after that and be like, why the heck are you out here elder? Like, this is something you should have taken care of long ago, which is true. Yeah. But that's not what happened. Both of them looked at me and said, I've been there. Either I've been there and I've taken care of it. One of them said, I'm going through the same thing right now. And I needed someone to tell me that right now. Mm. So I could start doing the same thing. And I remember that night just crying together with these guys and just talking and just feeling that healing and that connection for the first time in my life. Yeah. And the next morning I texted my mission president and said, president, I need to talk to you. He met with me that afternoon at district conference. I remember right before the meeting, he came up to me and he pulled me into the sacrament prep room in the chapel. He's like, all right, other Stanger, what do you need to say? Oh gosh. And I, told him and this I didn't tell him everything I was like if you want to know more details I'm more than happy to share but I've struggled with pornography and masturbation ever since I was 11 or 12 and I haven't I've been doing my best for the last seven months and I've been clean but I've never confessed to someone and this conversation didn't take more than four or five minutes and I didn't have any expectation of what he was going to say I was totally okay with whether he said you're good or I was totally okay if he said we need to talk again in the future and there's a chance that you might get sent home Mm. to take care of this. I was okay with it. I was ready. I was ready to do whatever it took to, to fully repent, but I was really blessed. I think that's the definition of godly sorrow. Exactly. That's repentance. 
that's repentance that's that's having that contrite heart interesting and he told me at that time that i was okay he's like this is behind you now i want you to go through and keep repenting and and go through that change of heart but you stay out here and you consecrate yourself to the lord mm. and i remember him opening that door and i walked out of that sacrament prep room and i saw my buddies that were sitting there on the back row and I just felt the lightest feeling of joy and happiness that I'd ever felt in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Like this, this first time that, you know, I was, I was okay in the sight of God and I could be proud of myself. That's so cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a feeling you'll never forget, huh? No. You'll never forget. There's no way I ever will. I'm so, so grateful for just that sequence of events. That was not an accident. That was not a coincidence. Yeah, it's necessary. It was necessary. For your change. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that you've kind of kept or not kept that tenacity moving on from your mission? <laughs> that's a great question. Tenacity, is that the word to use? <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great word to use. I feel like... Um, I mean, at least for the rest of my mission, I had a great mission. Those last 17 months or so mm-hmm. were amazing. So many miracles, so many blessings. But um, when I got back, I stayed good. I stayed, I stayed clean for, I think it was about a year after my mission, and then I got a little bit complacent. And so at that point, it had been three years that I was completely, I mean, sober, completely abstinent from any addictive behavior. Um, But I remember I I had a, I had a girlfriend at the time and um, we were probably were doing some things that we shouldn't have been doing. Nothing like, nothing crossing the line, but like just, you know, enough where you're like, we should probably stay away from even getting close to that line, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just kind of, and when you're going through hard things and once you're an addict, you're always an addict and your brain will flip back to that pleasure, that, that reward pathway instantly if you turn to it. And so I remember one night it happened again. And, uh, I mean, there was no pornography involved or anything like that, but, um, it just felt absolutely terrible, mm-hmm. but it was different this time because I felt terrible, but I didn't feel hopeless. Because you knew how it felt. Yeah. How You knew the steps, how to feel that hope again, yeah. maybe is what I said. There. Exactly. And so in the next couple of days, I went to my bishop and I told him everything. And we started that process over again. Mm. And it's a long process. When you go for three years without staying completely clean and then you slip up again, you're like, will this ever like go away? Yeah. Will this ever really go away? It's frustrating. It's so frustrating. And I was frustrated with myself more than anything. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went, I don't know, probably like six or seven months. And then something happened again and I got myself in a bad situation and I slipped up again. Mm. And, you know, this is, this is probably only like around a year ago, maybe like nine, 10, 11 months ago. Um, where I slept in again, slept up again once. So it was like, it was now I was starting to see a pattern. Like, you know, yeah. once every like seven months, eight months, I would just like get a little bit complacent, get myself in a bad spot and it would happen again. Mm. And I'd feel so disappointed in myself, not hopeless, 
but extremely frustrated and extremely disappointed. But I never once felt that desire to hide it, if that makes any Again. sense. Yeah. yeah. So I would I would always go to my bishop right away. And I had the same bishop at the time. And I'd be like, Bishop, I'm so sorry. But I slipped up again. Hmm. And he was he was always so understanding. And, and repentance literally is all about the condition of your heart and the desires of your heart. And even if you do mess up, even if you do make a mistake, if you're feeling that sincere sorrow and sincere guilt, mm-hmm. that's really all that you need to change. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, um, what do you think is the most important attribute that you have developed or that is important to develop when getting through a pornography addiction? It's realizing that you can't be independent. Hmm. I think it's, it's that first step in AA or the first step in the 12 step program. It's realizing that you are powerless against addiction. Mm. That this is a chemical problem in your brain and you are not able to overcome this without another person or divine help. Yeah. Did you go through therapy? Like ne- official never, therapy? I never one on one therapy. Okay. But I went through this program called Sons of Human through Life Changing Services, which mm-hmm. is a group therapy program. Um, another like twelve week program. And it's amazing. And you get that camaraderie with, with some of your buddies and you see people. And and I had to go through that twice in that time where I would go like six months and I'd be like, yeah, these 12 weeks, I've been good. And it'd go on for a few more weeks after that. And I'd slip up and be like, well, it's time to go back. Mm, got I guess, it. I guess I haven't really learned to the extent that I need to learn. And so I'd go back and and go through it again. Gosh. Wow. I like look at you at such a different light of like tenacity and Christ likeness because so many people go through it, but they don't do anything about it, you know? And, and, and that's with all types of addictions or difficult times is something happened. And, and what are we going to do? Are we going to just be complacent? Or are we going to work through it? Mm-hmm. Are you going to, are you going to hide? Are you going to blame something? Or are you going to look for help? Yeah, or blame others, right? Yeah. Um, why? Um, just wrapping up here. I want to, I want to ask you, how do you think through this entire time and through this experience that you had, uh, how do you think you have looked into the light? How do you think you have gone that step to continue to be in the light? I think uh, the thing that's coming to light for me more than anything else is this paradigm shift that it's not it's not like a an overnight change. It's not it's not this thing that happens because you've changed your mind about something. Rather, it's a for process. Sure. You're becoming more like the Savior every day as you repent and change, and as your heart desires good. I remember. Um, like the scariest scripture verse I've ever read in my whole life during this time is in probably my favorite chapter ever in Moroni chapter nine. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, wait, I might be thinking of Mormon nine. I can't remember. It's Mormon nine or Moroni nine. You'll look it up sometime later, <laughs> but I have it written down here. He's, yeah, it says, um, 
He that is filthy shall be filthy still, and he that is righteous shall be righteous still. He that is happy shall be happy still, and he that is unhappy shall be unhappy still. And so through that whole time, I don't think I ever felt truly happy. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, that's scary. That's a scary thought. Like even in the next life, like if I'm unhappy in this life and I don't change anything, I'm going to be unhappy in the next life. If I'm filthy, if I'm not worthy in this life, I'm not going to be worthy in the next life. Nothing's going to happen like that. Even death Mm -hmm. isn't going to change your desires. Um, sorry, I'm going to share one more quote. Go for it. No, go for it. <laughs> I have one more question after. Okay, perfect. This is, this is the quote that I kept turning to. Um, and this is, this is, this is intentions and desires 101. This is from Lawrence E. Corbridge, who was a member of the 70. Um, when I got back from my mission, he gave a BYU devotional talk called, uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting it now. You can go look it up. It's called, it's by Lawrence E. Corbridge. Um, but this is from the talk, the fourth missionary. And I have this written next to that scripture verse. And I have in all caps, the secret to happiness. He says, if your secret heartfelt desires are to do what you want to do rather than what the Lord wants for you, you will not be happy and you will not profit even from your good works because you will be in a state that is contrary to the nature of happiness. You can't be in a condition or state that is opposite to your nature. You can't be in a state of happiness, whether now or in the eternities, if you don't want to do the things that lead to happiness, even if you do those very things. Do you hear that? You can't be happy if you don't want to do the things that lead to happiness, even if you do those very things. Mm. And there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot there, but I... It's very much an obvious thing, but it's very much a not so obvious thing when you're in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Even if you're going through the motions of repentance, if you don't want to go through those motions, you're not going to feel the effects of the Savior's atonement. Mm-hmm. It has to be your own desire. It has to be your own intent mm-hmm. to really achieve that that change of heart. I like that. It's all about what you want inside truly, not what somebody else wants for you or how you feel like you need to be but how you think you need to be inside of you personally. Exactly. Um, if you could choose one thing, just one thing to give advice to somebody who is also going through this, what would be the one thing that you wish you knew when going through it? I think superficially, I always knew that the savior would never get up, give up on me, mm-hmm. but deep down, I yeah. didn't believe it. And I think if I would have known that and believed that for myself, I would have been able to do anything to overcome it. But the simple truth is if anyone out there is struggling with any sort of addiction, whether it be pornography or masturbation or drugs, alcohol, anything like that, the Savior literally does not give up on people. Mm-hmm. He went through everything that we've gone through so that he knows how to sucker us when we're feeling down in those times. And he sees us differently than we see ourselves. I think I viewed myself in a very negative light at those times. I didn't see myself as a worthy son of God, even worthy of his love. Yeah. But literally, he loves you no matter what. And he loves you enough that he went through everything so that you could make it back to him. Yeah. 
if if you showed that submissive, meek, humble heart that he asked for. That's the only thing that he asks is for you to submit your own will to his. And he can show you a better way, a better life. That's a very literal thing. I think we say that so many times, so many times, and, and we and we think we feel it and we think we know it. But do we ever internalize it? And like, I actually believe, I actually literally know and believe and and can feel that he's doing that or making making that change within yourself that you physically could not do by yourself. And it's not, I know we talked about this in, in your story as well, but it's not simply a spiritual change. No, not at all. But rather, I want to preface it with this. Once you're addicted to something, I feel like in a way you're always going to be addicted to something. But the Savior's atonement changes your physiology to an extent that you don't have to think about that addiction anymore. Mm. It changes your physiology to the point where you don't feel those urges anymore. And no worldly worldly thing can do that. Yeah. It is it is it is him. It is it is looking to him and changing through him and his atonement. Absolutes don't exist within the bounds of the atonement. Exactly. I love that. We can do anything through Christ and we don't have to have a limit on in, in what he can do. No ma'am. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today and, and and being so vulnerable. I know how hard that is, especially for one of your first times talking about it. And and I know how many people it's gonna touch and I felt the spirit constantly throughout this. And I'm just very grateful that we had this opportunity in this kind of platform that we could do so because it is affecting more people than we know because of the whole secrecy factor of it. So thank you so much for that. Um, any last words before we sign off? Um, I just want to, if anyone out there is struggling at all with anything like this, please just open up to someone. Yeah. Even if it's just a little bit, you don't have to say everything. Just tell them that you're struggling mm-hmm. and that you need help. Putting it out there in the world. Yeah. yeah I a thousand percent Just, agree. Just open up and and just don't take it on by yourself. Because one, at least for me, it wasn't possible to take it on by myself. Mm-hmm. And two, there are people out there that want to help. And more than anything, the Savior wants to help. Yeah. And if you don't need to bear that burden alone. So whatever you feel like you need to tell someone, just do it. Just make that decision now. Write it down. Read it to them. Send them an email. Send them a text. Just whatever it takes to finally get that secrecy out to the open and start that recovery process and that healing. You will never regret doing that. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, well, thank you so much, everybody. Um, as again, again, <laughs> please subscribe to our podcast as well as if you have any questions, roast or we love want to thank Aaron for who he is as a human being in this earth. <laughs> um, no, send us, I don't want to hear that. Send us an email at into the light five zero two four fifty twenty four at gmail dot com. Um, but we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, y'all. Bye. See you, everyone.